gospel. And while you are uh, headed back to your seats, whenever you get there, take your Bible and open it to the third chapter of Titus. Third chapter of Titus. Almost done with this book. It's a short one. I want to throw out some words to you. Um, I've entitled the message, Lest We Forget. Why did I do that? Because I thought a lot about it yesterday. Anybody know what yesterday, December the 7th, was the anniversary of? Good job. Good job. Most of us weren't alive when Pearl Harbor happened. And uh, Jenny and Isaac were just recently there. And uh, some others of you have visited that place. And we are getting to the point now where there are fewer and fewer and fewer Pearl Harbor survivors still living. It's been a long time ago. And when you go to a memorial like that, one day I hope to go, when, when you go to a memorial like that, or maybe you think about the Murrah Building um, uh, Memorial, you ought to go to that if you haven't. Uh, memorials are a place where we remember the dead. We remember those who gave their lives. We remember those whose lives were taken from them. That must have been a horrific, horrific thing. One of my Facebook friends, his father is still living, and he's a Pearl Harbor survivor. And he was on a ship, and he said he was on deck at a certain place where he said when the Japanese Zeros were flying over, he said he could see the pilot's face as he was grinning. Can you imagine? You think about the horror of that day, being caught off guard. We weren't in a time of war. It was a, a sneak attack. And a lot of, a lot of men were lost on that particular day. And I think it's good that we remember those kind of things. We forget sometimes that in America we have a lot of freedom, but that freedom was not free. It was at a high cost, wasn't it? People who have laid down their lives so that we could live where we live and live the way that we live. And we must never forget and in thinking about that, it reminded me of the passage we're going to look at today, lest we forget, because today we're going to talk about and remember the dead. And that dead person we're going to remember is you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it seems to me that as Paul writes, it seems like you can go to several passages of Scripture, several letters that he writes, and he brings up stuff like this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You know, he talks about things like that in Romans. Romans chapter 3. No one does good. No, not one. That includes us. None that seeks after God. That included us. None that understands. We've all become unprofitable. Isaiah even said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Well, you don't really have to be a shepherd to understand that do you what happens to a sheep that goes his own way he dies there's no hope for that sheep unless the shepherd would go and rescue it we think about Ephesians chapter 2 dead in trespasses and sins and you can read it it's as though the Lord doesn't want us to forget where we came from Sometimes when a young man or young woman, maybe they leave home, go into college or something like that, somebody might say, never forget where you came from. 
And I think for us as Christians, it's good for us to reflect on where we came from, where the Lord found us, where we were and what we were before we were saved. Because you see, there are a lot of words we can think about. We can think about the word justified. That's a good word. That's what happened at the moment of salvation when God declared us not guilty. We were made just as if I'd justified, just as if I'd never sinned, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb in a moment, in an instant. All of your guilt and all of your law-breaking, all of your sin was all forgiven and put away, and you were a child of God. We can think about the word sanctified. We are becoming more like Jesus. He is making us holy. He is setting us apart. As you grow in the Lord, you're probably more aware of sin now than you were when you were first saved. God is still revealing things to you and stepping you one step at a time where He wants you to be, conforming you to the image of His Son. It's a good word. We can think about the word regenerated because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you can dress up a corpse... You can embalm a corpse. In fact, you can even go to Red Square in Moscow, Russia, and you can go to a memorial of Vladimir Lenin, who led the Bolshevik Revolution, and you know what you'll find in there? His body in a glass case on display. Now, obviously, they don't want it rotting and grotesque and looking like a zombie or something like that. It's well-preserved, and they take good care of it, but he's just as dead as a homeless person that may be found on the street after a few days. He's just as dead as someone who was in a concentration camp or a war zone or who was entombed in the USS Arizona. Dead is dead. There are no degrees of death, and there's not any particular... Um, thing about death where just because it looks pretty and just because it looks good and just because it's embalmed and dressed up and put in a casket and uh, that's a better type thing no it's all dead and we were dead like that without any ability some of us may have looked worse than others Dr. James Kennedy used to have an illustration of driving um, in the Rocky Mountains and you come upon a horrific scene. A a bus full of tourists has gone off of the road and it began to roll down the slope of one of those mountains. And nobody has been on the scene to rescue or do first aid and it's been about five days since the wreck happened. He said, you stop your car horrified and you rush down there to see if you can give any aid and to your chagrin you find out that all of the passengers are dead. And he said, now some of the people died two minutes before you got there. Their bodies look normal. They're still warm to the touch. Other people died five days ago, and their bodies are cold and lifeless and beginning to decompose, and the smell is repulsive. He said, is there any difference In the people, no, they're all dead. Some are just in various stages of decomposition. But they're all dead. So that's the way life is for sinners. We look at some people and we say, certainly they can't be dead in trespasses and sins. They go to church. They're clean. They're successful. They're moralistic. They are good citizens. But then we have other people that we don't have any problem seeing their sin because 
oh, it's just horrible and rotten the way that they live. And we look at all of that and we try to make judgments. The Bible says, here's the deal. No matter how they may appear to you or what state they might be in, there's one thing that is common. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. And the only hope is to be regenerated, regenerated, again living, again having life. And you and I can't do that. You see, they can dress up and preserve and embalm the corpse of Vladimir Lenin, but they can't give it life. And it's no closer to life when it's wearing a suit and a tie, has makeup on and embalmed than it is if it is not. It's still dead. And we need regeneration. It's a good word. It's a Bible word. The word righteous is good because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that means that we are not righteous. We are unrighteous, the Bible says. And everything that we do, no matter how hard we try, we always fall short. The illustration has been used for years. If we all lined up on a cliff in California and we took a run to jump across the Pacific Ocean, here's the deal. Some people might get farther than others. You might have somebody who is young and athletic and strong and they can run faster and they can jump farther than you can. For me, I'm pretty sure I would just roll down the cliff. But you know what the truth of the matter is? None of, none of us would make it, would we? It's an impossible task. And when we try to gain righteousness, it's an impossible task for us. I'm going to be more righteous. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. And for a lot of people, that's kind of the message of Christmas. Just do better and try harder and be a better person. But that doesn't make you righteous. And it doesn't pay for the sin that you've already committed. Even if you were perfect from this day forward, you would still be unrighteous because you would be tainted and stained by the sin that you have already committed. And there's the word reconciled. It's a good word. We sang about it. Hark the herald angels sing, right? And it says in there that because of God becoming a man, that God and sinners are reconciled. When Jesus is on the cross, it's as if in his humanity he grabbed a hold of us, and in his deity he grabbed a hold of God, and we come together on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not on anything that we do, but on what he has done for us. All of those are good words. All of those are words you ought to know. All those words are words you sing about and you ought to understand and you ought to study. They're good words. But I can make those words absolutely rotten and despicable by adding one thing. Self-righteousness. Doesn't that rub you the wrong way? The self-righteous. The hypocrite. The person who thinks they're better than everyone else. And if you put self on any of these words, self-justified is not justification. Self-sanctified is not sanctification at all. Self-regeneration is absolutely impossible. You can't give yourself life. It has to be given to you. Self-righteousness is disgusting, and we repudiate that. And self-reconciliation... How do you do that? How do you make an enemy? How do you make someone who is hostile towards you? How do you make them become your friend? And you can't, especially when that enemy is God. Did you know the Bible says that before salvation, you were an enemy of the cross and you didn't even know it? It's the way God saw you. Hostile, 
There was a state of war that existed between you and against him. And so when we think about these words and we think about the self in them, Paul takes us to Titus and he takes us to the third chapter and we go down at verse 3 and he wants to remind us because sometimes as Christians, as born-again believers, we drift back into the self-effort of things. We begin to look back and say, well, I was dead, but I wasn't as dead as they are. I was lost, but I wasn't as lost as they are. And Paul says, I want to knock that in the head and remind you of just who you are and where God found you. Now, is he trying to make us feel bad? No, he's saying, lest we forget where we came from. Because when you get this, everything else falls into place. But if you don't get this, nothing else in the gospel makes any sense. And here it is in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Titus. For we ourselves, okay, don't go any further. Let that sink in. For we ourselves, or is there any question about who he's talking to? He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to believers. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving, and that word means enslaved, to various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Let that sink in. What would life be like for you being like that, which you were, some degree, some things stronger than others, but all there. What if that's all that the Bible told us? What if all the Bible's message was, you're dead, you're rotten, you're no good, you can never make it, there's no hope for you. What if that was all that was ever said? That'd be pretty depressing and defeating. But I'll have you just stop before we read on, and it doesn't say, pull yourself out of this. You can make it. God believes in you. That's not what it is, is it? In fact, the Bible sets us up here as being in a place that you and I cannot get out of any more than a dead person can get out of the grave. So what does he say and why do we have any hope? There's that glorious word of contrast. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared. Boy, that changes everything, doesn't it? It had to appear. We couldn't get it. We couldn't gain it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't climb a ladder to get to it. We couldn't get anything to come our way. We're dead. But it appeared. And how did it appear? Just to make sure we understand, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Not by works of righteousness. It wasn't your baptism. It wasn't your church attendance. It's not your giving. It's not your moralizing. It's not anything that you've done. Not by works of righteousness. But according to his... What's the word there, church? Mercy. Say that again. What is it? Mercy. Mercy. He saved us. You don't have mercy on a superior. You don't have mercy on somebody who can help themselves. You have mercy 
on the defeated. You have mercy on those who are downtrodden. You have mercy on those who can't get out of the situation that they're in. And it was his mercy. You were dead and you could do nothing, 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 nothing. Let it sink in. Nothing about it. And that's why he had to have mercy upon you. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Those are probably the three most important words in the passage. We didn't save us. I didn't save us. You didn't save us. Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, they didn't save us. Paul didn't save us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John didn't save us. The Bible is really clear here. By his mercy, he, God, saved us. Because that's the only hope that we had. How did he do that? Through the washing of regeneration or giving us life and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that's God's work. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified or declared not guilty by his grace, we should become, this is jaw-dropping, heirs according to to the hope of eternal life. God takes dead, rebellious sinners, dies for them, regenerates them, cleanses them, gives them life, and then makes them heirs of God. Listen, if you're an heir of somebody, you are a somebody. And to be an heir of God You have been taken from death to life out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And now the riches of God that he has given to Jesus Christ, you share in it because you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ as a child of God. And you didn't do anything to earn it. It was given to you freely by the grace of God. All you could do was be dead and continue to rot. And what did he do? In his kindness, he came to you and he regenerated you. He washed you up. He gave you life. He gave you his spirit. He brought you out of where you were. And then he makes you an heir of his kingdom. And that leads me to verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. You know what Paul's saying? Titus, don't ever quit telling people about their deadness. Don't ever quit reminding people where they came from, lest they forget and think that they're better than other people. God doesn't want you looking at the drug addict and going, well, at least I've never done that. He wants you to look and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Because had I continued to be dead and decompose and decay, I would have sunk further and further into sin. And that very well could be. God doesn't want you to look at the person on death row and say, well, at least I have never done that. He wants you to understand you were perfectly capable of murder because you had hatred in your heart. And just because you're the corpse that was dressed up and embalmed and put in a pretty casket with flowers doesn't mean that you were any less dead or any less in need of a savior than the person on death row. You understand what I'm saying? And we forget. 
How can they be like that? How can they think like that? What is this world coming to? Can I ask you a question? A question? Biblically literate Christian? I can't get that out. What did you expect the world to become? Well, it's worse than it was when I was growing up. That's because it's dead. And dead things don't get prettier. Dead things don't start smelling better. Dead things don't become more palatable. Right? I mean, what kind of a crazy person has their beloved dog die and they just keep the dog in the living room where he died? As much as you love the dog, you've got to get him out of there. Right? You can't do that. As much as you love a parent, as much as you love a friend, you, when they die, what do you do? They have to go to the funeral home. and They have to be buried. You can't keep them around. It's not going to be a good thing. That's crazy. That's insane. People that do that, uh, they need help. And let me tell you something. The Bible says this world is passing away. What was it that uh, they said to you when that loved one died? They passed away well if the world is passing away John said you know what John is telling us this world is dead it's not getting better this world is dead what are you expecting what do you think what do you think is going to happen and apart from the work of Jesus Christ you're going to see things that you never thought you would see and you're not supposed to be caught off guard by that you're supposed to understand that's the course of death. It gets worse and worse and worse as it goes on because there's only one way you can change that and that is to bring life to that dead person. Now that would change everything. And so as we think about the things that are going on in this world, as we think about people's actions, as we think about corruption, I mean even that is a death word, isn't it? Things are corrupt when they die. The body is corrupted when it dies. Well, that's infecting everything we see. Business is corrupt. Politics, corrupt. Entertainment, corrupt. Right? Families, we see the corruption of, of families. We see morals are corrupted. And I just want to say to you, if you know your Bible and you understand doctrine, especially the doctrines of grace, come on, man. What did you think was going to happen? And why do you think that we are here? Say, well, God saved us so he could take us to heaven. Well, that's a part of it, but that's not the real reason or the whole reason. If that were it, then you would uh, get down on your knees knees and say God have mercy on me a sinner I confess Jesus is my Lord and only Savior and he would kill you and take you to heaven but he doesn't do that does he he leaves you behind on this earth and while you're behind on this earth you're supposed to be salt and light you are supposed to be an ambassador a representative for Jesus Christ while you're on this earth you're also here not only to share the gospel with lost people, but to help disciple saved people. You're here so you can set an example, 
so you can teach them, so you can pray for them, so you can walk with them, so you can love them, so you can impart some wisdom on to them. Because all of us are headed to the grave in the physical sense. Now, as believers, we know that to be absent from the body is, of course, to be present with the Lord. That's a good thing. But it also means that everything that is stored in between your ears, all that gray matter there, all of your experiences, all of your wisdom, everything that you've learned... It's going to die with you. God says, I want you to transfer as much of that as possible to other people and disciple them so that they are better equipped for the world that they're going to live in. We are constantly passing it on. Constantly passing it on. Constantly passing it on. Now, not everybody wants it, and you can only give it to those who really want it. So we want to pray that God would create a desire and a, and a need and a want in other people so that we can share those, and then we do it as he gives us the open door. But that's what our assignment is, leading people to Christ, sharing the gospel with them, and discipling those who come to know the Lord and making best use of that until the Lord calls us home, whenever that might be. You say... Um, how many people really need that? Doesn't everybody kind of know the gospel? Doesn't everybody get it? Well, here's a quote for you. This is a recent quote. This is from a presidential candidate and a former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg. You want to hear this? Because I think what he is saying here is not uncommon. Quote, I am telling you if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be interviewed, he said. Apparently with a smile. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Oh, can you believe somebody would think that? Yeah. That's what everybody but a born-again Christian thinks. That's what everybody feels. The good will weigh out the bad. I'm better than most. And we can all find somebody worse than us, can't we? And every religion is climbing a ladder, climbing stairs, taking an elevator, working your way up to heaven. Now let's go to the funeral home and let's pick out the best looking corpse we can find. This person didn't have chemotherapy. This person was not really old. This person died and they were in really, really, really good shape. And let's take them to a staircase and say, okay, climb. Let me show you how. Are they going to do it? Let's put them on a ladder. Climb up the ladder. Climb up the ladder. Work, 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 work. Let's, let's do this. Come on, you can do it. Do better. Try harder. Right? And they can't do it. And they don't know why they can't do it. And they may be under the delusion that they are doing it, but the truth of the matter is they're not. And this is what every religion teaches except biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not man getting to God. It's God coming to man. God being the sacrifice. God paying for sin. God raising us up. That's the difference. And that's why when we think about everything that's going on today and what people believe and what they don't believe and what they think and what they don't think, we've got to tell them the truth because, well, the media is not. Have you noticed that? Shock. A lot of churches aren't. They're gathering this morning and they're singing and they're giving a message that's a self-help, self-improvement message. They wouldn't preach anything like this. They wouldn't dare do it. 
And they're not helping anybody. In fact, they're deceiving millions of people, aren't they? They're wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? Or it's an idiotic mixture of hang your stockings and say your prayers because Santa Claus comes tonight. And that's about all it gets you. Feels good, maybe there's some hope, and then it leaves you with the, well, maybe next time, and maybe next year, something will happen. That's not Christianity. Christianity is taking us down here to the truth. So, what is the truth? And here's how I've outlined this. That when I think about this, when I look at verses 3 and 4, understand this, before we were saved, we were desperate. And notice how it says, we ourselves also, well, we're foolish, disobedient, deceived. Now, what's that going to get you? That doesn't get you anywhere except worse and in a lot of trouble. When you're enslaved to your lust and pleasures, what does that get you? Nowhere, nowhere. Just chains wrapped around you and no hope and no freedom. Living in malice, wanting other people to hurt. I want what you've got and I want you to hurt. I want what you've got and I don't want you to have anything. That's the, uh, the mantra of our day, isn't it? And all of the envying, hateful and hating one another. And, and look at the words in verse 4. Kindness and love and Savior. Kindness, love, and Savior. What does that mean? We were in a desperate, desperate state. And if God hadn't been kind to us, we would have experienced his wrath in hell forever. Let that sink in. If God had not had love for us, he never would have sent his son to die on the cross for us. And if we had been able to do it ourselves, he never would have sent Jesus to go through all of that. But he did it because you and I were helpless and dead and we needed a savior. Somebody say amen to that. Number two, we were depraved. What does depravity mean? Not that everybody is as bad as they can be. It just means this, inability, inability, inability. No matter what corpse you get, as we said, they can never take a step. They can never climb stairs. They can never do anything to better where they are. That's what depravity means. Now, you may have been a sophisticated lost person, and you were clean, and you were well-to-do, and you were moralistic, but you were still on your way to hell, and you were still dead and depraved in your ability to save yourself. You may have come from uh, being an addict on the street, and you were still the same way, no better, no worse in spiritual terms, because total depravity means total inability to make yourself right with God. Notice here, it's not by works of righteousness. What does the Bible say? That our righteousness is as what? Dirty, filthy rags. Yeah, look that up sometime. It'll disgust you. That God says, at your best, that's what you were. Not by those things, but it's according to his mercy. He had mercy on us because we were depraved and we were deserving of hell. And he had mercy on us upon us. No hope of doing anything that would give us the advantage. Look at the third thing. The Bible says we were dirty. That's why you have to be washed. That's why you have to be regenerated. Dead things are nasty. And you have to be renewed and it has to be by the Holy Spirit. And it is interesting when you look at verse 5 that it was the renewing of the Holy Spirit 
Verse 6, whom he, that's God the Father, poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Oh, you've got the Trinity right there. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who saved me? They all did. They all work in harmony. They all work together. It was the Father that planned it. It was the Son that carried it out. And it's the Holy Spirit that drew us to Christ and gave us faith to believe. Washing, regeneration, and renewing. All of that happened. And they were all involved in it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because we were dirty. So, this is not a very pretty picture when we think about this here. We're desperate. We are depraved. And we are dirty. And look at this last thing. We were destitute. Because without this, we didn't have anything. We couldn't buy God off. There were no bribes. There was no offering. We didn't have anything to give him. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what he was actually saying? Blessed are the spiritual beggars. They're the happy ones. Because God only saves the beggars. God only saves those who have nothing. God only saves those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. And he pours his riches abundantly out on those who see that. As long as you think you can do it yourself, you're, you're on your own. And you'll not get anywhere. But it's when you come to that place where you say, I cannot do this. I do not deserve this. I have no hope except for a loving God who paid for my sins and I surrender to him as my Lord. That's what's called entering the narrow gate. You don't enter the narrow gate with baggage. You don't enter the narrow gate with anything that you have. You lay it all down and you walk through there. It's like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Isn't that good? And that's where we are because we are destitute. And it's because we're destitute that it says that when we are justified by his grace, he makes sure we understand that, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So here we are, spiritual beggars. And what does he do? He pays our sin debt. And then he pours the riches of his righteousness upon us so that we'll never be in that position ever again for all eternity. Praise his holy name, somebody. Oh, that's good news. So when you really get this truth, think about this. You have nowhere else to turn. You see, this is the thing that brings people to the point of surrendering to Jesus Christ. And that's all enabled by the Holy Spirit, by the way. But until somebody gets this, they, it never happens. Until you really get this truth, you realize you have nowhere else to turn. You realize how much Christ has done for you. And that makes you say this, he could never ask too much of me. Not, not after what he's done for me. He could never ask too much for me. He's paid the ultimate price. It also means you change the way that you look at others. We've already kind of talked about that. How do you look at people that are lost? Are you disgusted by them? Are you angry with them? Are you frustrated with them? Do you wonder what's wrong with them? Well, the same thing is wrong with them that was wrong with you. You. And you need to look at them differently. And you also change, most importantly, the way that you look at God. God owes you nothing and by saving you he has already given you far more than you deserve you haven't been shortchanged he's given you himself and there is nothing in the universe more valuable 
than God himself. And in that you have everything, everything that you will ever need. And you surrender to him and you serve him. And this is something that God apparently doesn't want you to forget. Because he says again in verse 8, this is a faithful saying. Faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Why? Because when we understand the doctrine of depravity, we understand that we ourselves were like that. It changes the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at others, and certainly the way we look at God. How long has it been since you really praised God for your salvation? How long has it been since he rolled back the curtain of memory and showed you where he found you? How long has it been since you exalted in the Lord? Not what he's done for you, not what he's given you, but in who he is, that he would send his own son to be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, laid in a manger, grow up in Nazareth, going to the synagogue, going to the temple, completely fulfilling all of the law's demands. Can you imagine? His public ministry, where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And everybody goes, What? What? How can that be? To see him as he is arrested, taken before Pilate, and even Pilate says, I find no fault in him only to be beaten, mocked, taken to the cross, having nails driven through his hands and his feet, suspended in midair between heaven and earth, and having God the Father and God the Holy Spirit turn their backs on God the Son and the agony of bearing your sin and having his Father and God the Holy Spirit turned their backs on him, made the Son of God shriek with a loud voice. Why have you forsaken me? Till finally he said, to Telestai, finished, debt paid in full. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Right? That's our Lord. That's the story. And I think about an old song, old song. I remember my sister-in-law Nola singing this back at Bethel in Owasso. From the door of an orphanage to the house of a king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. You know that song? Stand up. You know it. I'm so glad. Sing it. I'm a part 
of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain and cleansed by his blood. Joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Why? Because of his mercy because of his kindness, because of his grace, because of his sacrifice, because of his resurrection, because of his victory, and because he came to you. Praise his holy name forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now the question is, are you? Are you a part of the family of God? For those of you who are part of our ministry, uh, go back to the back now. And they're going to go back there because they will receive you if you've got any questions. If you want to trust Christ, if you want to be a part of the family of God, they'll take the Bible and you can check me out. See? I don't ask you to believe me because I say it. Well, certainly the preacher wouldn't lie. Lots of preachers lie. Lots of preachers deceive. Believe me, lots of them do. There are a lot of snakes in the grass, and I'm giving you free permission. Take your Bible and check me out. Okay? You do that and learn it for yourself. And they will take a Bible, and they will show you how you can be born again. How many of you in the room can testify that what the Bible says about being born again is true? Just say amen. Amen. You got any doubts, you can talk to them, or you can talk to somebody who said amen. You may know them better. And if you are a Christian, you've been born again, you know you're going to heaven. How long has it been? How long has it been since you really just relished what God has done for you? How long has it been since the joy bells in your heart began to ring because of what he has done for you and that he included you in his eternal plan? How long has it been since you thanked him for bringing you out of death and depravity and out of that desperation that you were in? Will you do it now? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. If you want to respond and go to the back, you can go anytime, anytime, anytime. Okay? Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for taking dead, depraved, dirty, deceived. I mean, we could go on and on with all of that. Desperate, desolate sinners and bringing us into your family and making us alive in Christ and giving us an eternal destiny. May we bring glory and honor to your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together before we're dismissed.